0: Back. Lords, ladies, and lovelies, the Black Girl Tea Party. My name is Yasmin Hill.
1: And I'm Alexandria Dorsey. First up, let's get right into the brew. Yasmeen, what's brewing for you this week?
0: My brew this week is about... It's actually really exciting. Uh, the city of Evanston, Illinois, announced on Tuesday that they would be implementing a plan to um, help Black families that were directly affected by anti-Black uh, housing policies and um, loan policies, the city voted eight to one to set aside $400,000 for eligible families, um, with each of those families being able to receive up to $25,000. And so a quote, qualifying residents must either have lived in or been a direct descendant of a black person who lived in Evanston between 1919 to 1969, who suffered discrimination in housing because of city ordinances, policies, or practices. And so this is a really interesting development. The article also says that they are going to be using the profits from recreational marijuana sales to supplement this cost. And I think one that lines up completely with what this episode is about, but two i think is a, an interesting way to implement reparations i know that that is like a pretty controversial topic on whether one how they should be um distributed how you would um qualify to get them or it, whether they should be given at all i know that that there are a lot of uh circulating opinions on that um but i'm definitely going to be tapped into evanston to see how they come back from this i think it's really interesting and especially because black communities have been affected the most by um uh, marijuana policies and incarceration because of like drugs and stuff like that that's very clear so i like that now an industry that has proven to be lucrative and um economically beneficial that profit is going directly back into a black community so kudos Zan. what's brewing for you this week
1: my brew um is something that i think um we just we just need to be talking about um right now so um earlier um this month we've seen um a man went on a shooting spree across the atlanta area that left eight people dead, um, and it is just one one moment in this spree of anti Asian hate crimes that have been on the rise since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and I want to talk about it for a little bit because I wanted to highlight that when this happened, uh, what we were being told about uh, these shooters' motivations. For these hate crimes is that he was having a bad day and that he said that he had a like sex addiction and a porn addiction and he was trying to eliminate temptation in his life and that these shootings were in no way racially motivated and honestly like I think that's bullshit I really do uh because there is nothing about this shooting spree that isn't racially motivated and isn't a part of a number of things that have been happening in the country since the pandemic began around the way that we think about um, Asian Americans and in the way that we think about Asian people as a whole. And I think it's just really upsetting that we have decided (laughs) that we are going to ignore the clear threads of white supremacy and of anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian violence that are clear in this case. And I've just been I don't know, I've been on the internet for some time and I've been seeing a lot of posts made by Asian people, by Asian creators who are who are obviously like deeply hurting right now as a result of the wave of violence that is happening in our country right now, Um, I saw a video that like particularly struck me and it was um, a young guy on TikTok and he was reaching out to like black people and he was like, how do you deal with the constant like barrage of your own people's trauma being spread across the internet and being spread across um, news outlets and What's really sad is that some people in the comments were saying that they are numb to this kind of trauma, or that they are they had to actively take a break. I know that I did over the summer, is that I had to actively take a break from social media, but I was also like deeply depressed when that was happening. Like it is, it is a trauma to have to witness your people dying and having witnessed people who look like you be hurt in this way and it broke my heart to see this video of someone who was feeling the way that I felt and that I have been feeling for a very very long time and so I think my real my real the point I want to make um with this brew is that like when we see white supremacy in the world we have to call out for what it is we we have to call this out as anti-Asian hate and that this was an act this was a hate crime this was an act of violence specifically about hurting Asian people specifically Asian women who are the majority of the victims in this um in this case like this man had a target had an idea and he's destroyed lives because of his own prejudice because of his own hatred in his heart and to all like my 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 Asian American family who are like out there in the world and having to go through the trauma of recognizing this in their world and having to see it everywhere I just my heart goes out to you you know and I I am well equipped and understand what that emotion is like and I don't know I just remember over the summer feeling really like like my pain like my body weren't valuable because of incidents like this and I just want you to know that like your pain is valuable do not let people gaslight you into thinking that you should not be upset about this or you should not be angry do not suppress your emotions about this feel like you shouldn't that you don't have a right to cry about it because you do and if that's something that you need to do please take the time to do that and then you know find something in the world that makes you feel worth it. Especially makes you feel worth it, um, in like in embracing your own like Asianness. I had to find things that made me feel good about being black. And those are the things that made my life worth it. Like this show and like um Black Parade came out over the summer and I watched a lot of like Black is King on Disney Plus and I watched a lot of other things that made me feel good about being myself and I would encourage you to find those things and to like indulge in them but also like you know take some time for you take some time to deal with the emotions that you're feeling right now and don't let anyone tell you that you don't deserve to feel however you choose to feel about this this is your trauma and you get you get to deal with that in the way that's going to be productive for you and know that like the world values you and your body and your life and that all of those things mean something even when really awful and horrific things like this happen and I think we as a country really need to admit that white supremacy is an evil and that it has a great hold on all of our lives and until we recognize that None of us are going to be safe, and none of us are going to have freedom in the world. And with that, it's time for tea. This week, we're going to be covering the impact of the war on drugs, specifically on Black women and how the remnants of that are lingering in society today.
0: Conversations about the war on drugs often center the impact that it had on Black men, which was You know, large was great. It destabilized communities, increased militarization, increased the rate at which black men were being incarcerated, it exacerbated the school to prison pipeline, and all of these things. But an analysis of this phenomenon is flat unless you're looking at how the war impacted black women both in legislation and incarceration.
1: So let's start with some definitions. According to an article by Vox, in the 1970s, President Richard Nixon formally formally launched the War on Drugs to eradicate illicit drug use in the U.S. He says, and I quote, if we cannot destroy the drug menace in America, then it will surely destroy us, is what he said to Congress in 1971. He said, I am not prepared to accept this alternative. Over the next couple of decades, particularly under the Reagan administration, what followed was the escalation of global military and police efforts against drugs. In the beginning of the story, we see the DEA, or the Drug Enforcement Administration, be formed in July of 1973. And then most of the 70s was spent with the U.S. and several drug cartels uh, from other nations being in a tug of war over drug trafficking into the country and into other nations. The U.S. does indict some drug traffickers, and according to a timeline on the war on drugs by NPR, um, and I quote In July, the Washington Times publishes a story about the DEA informant Barry Seale's infiltration of the Medellin cartel's operations in Panama. The story shows that Nicaraguan tenemistas are involved in the drug trade. As a result of Seals-Evidence, the Miami federal grand jury indicts Carlos Leiter, Pablo Escobar, Jorge Escoa, and Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez-Gacha in 1984.
0: However, this only leads to people finding new ways to make and distribute drugs, because in the mid-1980s, due to the efforts of the South Florida Drug Task Force, work. Cocaine trafficking slowly changes transport routes. The Mexican border becomes the major point of entry for cocaine headed into the United States. Crack, a cheap, addictive, and potent form of cocaine, is first developed in the early 80s. It becomes popular in the New York region and other urban areas, devastating inner-city neighborhoods. Later, Reagan signs the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which appropriates $1.7 billion to fight the drug war. The bill also creates minimum penalties for drug offenses, which are increasingly criticized for promoting significant racial disparities in the prison population. Which of the differences in sentencing for crack and powder cocaine, possession of crack, which is cheaper, results in harsher sentences. And the majority of crack users tend to be lower income.
1: And like, this is actually one of the big issues with restricting certain drug use in the U.S. Um, So in my research for this episode, I found that like trafficking drugs is... A really like profitable venture and that for many people it is a way out of poverty um and so like people are going to traffic drugs even if it's illegal because there's a market for it um and I feel like the issue with restricting drug use in the U.S. is that we think oh if we restrict it then like less people will use it and less people will become addicts but that's that's thinking about in that way of thinking, we are thinking about addicts as like criminals, as people who traffic drugs, as, um, as people who are just like not worthy of our respect or humanity. And we are not handling our issues of drug use and drug overdose in the u.s as issues of mental health as issues of social welfare as issues of the extreme amounts of poverty that living under capitalism puts people under and i think we have to consider drug use holistically like i think it is important to think about the fact that like if people are willing to go to jail to escape poverty then like maybe that means there's something wrong with like the way that we treat poor people, and maybe we are not giving them enough um, aid to escape poverty if they are willing to be arrested for it. Um, which gets us into like some numbers where we say that most of the drug arrests made by the U.S. today um, for marijuana are an, over eighty percent of those arrests are be are just for having marijuana and like not for trafficking it in any way, so, in any which perform. Um, and then despite equal usage um of marijuana between like black and white people, black people are more likely to be arrested for it. Which basically gets into the my second point that I want to make is that like the way we think about drugs is also significantly um endorsed by the way that we think about people of color. Specifically black and 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 uh Latinite people. We associate this criminality with like with people of color and we can see the the lines of racism in the way that we do drug policy
0: still there have been legislative attempts to control drug distribution the adaa set a set a precedent to create a ripple effect that would incarcerate black women at disproportionate rates to white women and men street level offenders were punished instead of treated and mandatory minimums were officially established To quote Tiffany R. uh, Simmons, mandatory minimum sentencing emerged as the quintessential example of the war on crime conjoined to race and especially targeted blacks.
1: The same journal goes on to the prosecutorial impact on black women. When black women would appear in the courtroom, regardless of socioeconomic status or education level, there was a presumption of guilt even without factual evidence. Um, And I quote from this article, Black women also battle a general presumption of their guilt, owing to commonly held notions of their low character and lack of morality, as well as to the popularity of racialized caricatures, depending on their purported fiendish criminal ways. And so, again, there is like, there is racism in this, point blank, period. Um, we, we have tied our, who we think of as a criminal with like, with who we think black people and people of color are. And I think those strings cannot be disconnected from the way that we think about laws around drugs and the laws around um, addiction.
0: So there's a trend of black women being held to high standards for punishment. And now with the increasing national acceptance of marijuana um, and impending legalization, there is a clear disparity on who is profiting. Healthline says, according to the National Conference of State Legislature, 33 U.S. states have legalized cannabis for medical use, and 14 states, plus Washington, D.C., have legalized cannabis for recreational use for people over 21 years old. Within those states, white entrepreneurs have emerged as an undeniable force. In 2017, a marijuana business daily survey reported that 81% of people starting cannabis firms identify as white.
1: And also, like I don't know, like I the saying this whole episode, we can see how Black and Brown people were just dis- were disproportionately targeted in terms of marijuana-related offenses. Now that the rhetoric around drug around drugs is changing and it has proven to be a lucrative business, Black women are trying to break into the industry, but they are systemically shut out.
0: This in and of itself is really telling to me especially because um now on like streaming services and things like that there's a lot of content surrounding drug use and about marijuana specifically and i know of a lot of content that is just about the marijuana industry specifically and on a lot of those things i one i don't see a lot of people of color two i definitely don't see a lot of black people and it's very clear where The line is on how marijuana entrepreneurs are now um, regarded as being innovative and creative and like trailblazers of this industry. But when people in low income communities are selling drugs or using drugs, it is coded inevitably as this bad, violent thing. And there's this sort of dual narrative going around surrounding the plant that like, inhibits black people specifically black women from like profiting in this industry um when in reality it's like this ties back to the evanston situation of reparations it's like they're taking the profits from this industry which we know that has disenfranchised specific communities and like flipping it so that it is benefiting them directly and so if we don't have like clear pathways for black people to really be successful in the marijuana industry then we're yeah this divisive rhetoric is just going to keep prevailing and you have to think about how this is impacting black women socially this trend makes a lot of sense and so if these drugs which we have talked about before have been like strategically pumped into specific communities in order to increase incarceration rates of black men what does it do for black women that aren't incarcerated we've already established that black women that um are arrested are given um higher sentences um but it's even still affecting or was affecting and the effects of that are still remaining today but it was definitely still affecting um the women of that de- decade. Why? Because they um, are still living in low-income communities. They and they have to rely on other ways to make you know a means for themselves.
1: In an article by the ACLU. Minority women are especially targeted by drug war policies, while pregnant and parenting black women during pregnancy, for instance, are 10 times more likely to be drug tested and reported child welfare agencies than white women. Before this practice was struck down by the Supreme Court, one public hospital in South Carolina selectively drug tested pregnant black women and reported positive tests to police who often then arrested them, forcing many to give birth in shackles before taking them to jail. The effects of drug war policies have on children are also just as devastating. Today, 1.6 million children have a father in prison and 200,000 children have a mother in prison. Black children are nearly nine times more likely and Latino children three times more likely to have a parent in prison than white children. Children, too, are trapped within the criminal justice system, though Through youth of all ages use and sell drugs at similar rates, minority youth represent 60% to 75% of drug arrests today. In fact, black youth are incarcerated 25 times the rate of white youth. Latino youth, 13 times the rate of their white counterparts. And what we are seeing here is that, like, our...
0: And we have always tied minority groups to drug use. We can't erase how deeply racist our ideas of harmful nature of drugs are. In the article by ACLU, beginning in the early 1900s, drug warriors invoked the image of black men high on drugs to pass the nation's earliest drug laws. By 1930, Western states prohibited marijuana as a way to target the growing uh, Mexican community that had flooded the U.S. job market. In 1951, the Boggs Act established stringent narcotics penalties in response to the threat of communist opium from Asia. In 1973, with a mandate from the public to get tough on crime, New York enacted the Rockefeller Drug Laws requiring severe prison terms for drug crimes regardless of the circumstance. A quarter century later, 94% of all people in prison in New York State on drug charges are, are Black or Latino.
1: Our policies around drug use has far, far-reaching effects, more so than I think what was the intention was to hurt the individual. It is, as you can see here, it is hurting entire communities. When you get rid of parents by putting them in jail... Or any other like form of incarceration, um, whether that be in like mental facilities or or what have you, you are destroying a community. You are that is that is thousands of kids who are going to have to grow up in places without their parents, um, and you are also probably giving these kids a lot of trauma from those in, a lot of trauma from those incidents. Um, and I just really think that when we think about our drug policies. We like to think about people who use drugs as less than human. Unfortunately, we do not think of these people as people. We think of using drugs as a choice without understanding the, like, socioeconomic factors that come into drug use. But also we don't understand the mental health factors that come into drug use. Like, I don't know. Like, I think I have spent time with people who regularly do use drugs, especially, like, weed, because I am in college, and a lot of people do weed when they are in college. And, like, what I have found in my own personal experience is that, like, the people who do weed regularly are just people who are trying their best. Like, I think we ignore the fact that, like, being alive is a dumpster fire. Being alive is inherently an incredibly hard thing to do because we live under capitalism. Money is not easy to come by. It is even harder to keep. You are. We live in a world that is filled with so much racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and ableism and misogyny and especially and like if even though even if none of those things like affect you as a person, like going through life even on the day to day. Can be really, really difficult, and drugs and alcohol are what are the things that give people that ability to not think about any of those things for at least a little while, and that is the crux I think of a lot of people who I know or who I think talk about addiction is really that their lives have escalated in this way to where they're just like looking for something. To make things better for a little bit. And I feel like that is incredibly human. And I feel like we have a tendency to demonize people for this really, really human thing. And I think what that means is if you want less people to do drugs, you have to invest in those people. You have to invest in proper mental health like resources for these people. You have to create a society that cares about poor people and is willing to get them out of poverty so that maybe they won't do drugs to escape the harsh reality of living in poverty. Maybe they won't traffic drugs to make money for their families if that is the case, you know? And I also think, like, clearly what we see is that by criminalizing drugs we are not st- stopping people from doing it if anything more people <laughs> are doing drugs you know like we are not living in a society that is actively like jail is not is clearly not a, not a deterrent you know um it is clearly not um it is very clearly not stopping people from doing drugs so clearly this is not a system that is working i think we just have to really Spend our time trying to understand why do people do drugs, and if it is and if these drugs are a danger to their health, how do we how do we support people who do drugs so that they a will not die as a result of overdoses, and so that we can b not put them in prisons, which are largely also really inhumane environments that are going to deprive them of their personhood um Especially considering that a lot of the prison industry in the U.S. is for profit. Um, so, and so we're not going to put them in prisons so that other people cannot make money on their bodies being somewhere. And I think that is just the crux of the way that we think about why our drug policies are so messed up. Is because, like, we're not thinking about these people as people. We are thinking about these people as as bodies that can be in a prison or as criminals or as moral deviants and not as like humans who just need support. And I think there there's hope that our our criminal justice system as far as drug related offenses is concerned doesn't have to be like this. So I saw an article by North Carolina which is a nonprofit um that writes health nudes, and they have an article where um, one of their journalists um, went to Switzerland and learned about the way that Switzerland is handling um, their issues with drug abuse there. Um, so they mentioned in the article, um, this is how they have chosen to curve overdose death rates, as well as like HIV rates. Um, so I said they say, and I quote, The rise in HIV infections, drug overdose deaths, and the public nature of the drug problem led the Swiss to make major changes in how they approached illegal drugs and treated people who used those drugs. And And in 1994, Switzerland went on to pass one of the most progressive and controversial drug policies in the world, which included the dispensing of heroin. The article goes on to say, but the Swiss are pragmatic. Instead of endlessly fighting drugs, they took a new approach and began supporting drug users through new treatment options. The majority of Swiss, of Swiss citizens support the measures, despite some pushback inside and outside the country. The nation cut its drug overdose race rates significantly. HIV and hepatitis C infection rates dropped, and the crime rates also dropped. Um, And I want to use this quote from this article because I think it's really important. Um, So this article says that I quote, they have uh, four pillars of Swiss law are harm reduction, treatment prevention and repression um, or law enforcement. Um, And so there's a quote here that says the goal was not to fight drugs anymore. It's completely ridiculous to fight drugs, said Jean-Felix Savary secretary-general of the Roman Group of Addiction Studies in Geneva. We came to this conclusion and decided to change. It was a big revolution. We don't try to ask people not to take drugs, but take care of the problems generated by the situations around people being addicted to drugs. End quote. The policy became as much about public order as about public health, Savary said.
0: This is also happening in France. There is the Planterose drop-in center where drug users come in, drink coffee, hang out, get clean needles and other materials for safe drug use. There's a computer and small library for them to use as well as toilets, showers and laundry. In the morning, there's opioid substitutions such as methadone or buprenorphine and counseling sessions available. You know, up a spiral staircase are offices of doctors, social workers and nurses, educators who all work with this population. In France, there are more than 300 harm reduction centers and 480 clinics that offer opioid substitution treatment and other medical treatment to drug users anonymously and free of charge. According to the latest French data, overdose deaths have plateaued in the last decade and fluctuated between 300 to 400 a year in a country of 67 million people. In comparison to the U.S., had more than 70,000 overdose deaths in a population of 325 million and in 2016 the number of new hiv infections in france related to injection drug use dropped to a total of 49 in the u.s in 2017 that number was close to 2400
1: and i think that is the key i think if we started thinking about people who use drugs as people first we could drastically change the amount of people who are incarcerated, the, people, the amount of communities that are destabilized by these people, by people being incarcerated, the amount of people who would even use drugs to begin with, and the people who die as a result of overdose, or as a result of HIV, or as a result of like hepatitis C, or any other number of illnesses that can happen as a result of, like, unsafe drug use. I think if we spent our time and our money and our energy, like, investing in these people and treating them like they had value, we could really be seeing some change. And I know that what Switzerland is doing is, like, I think it is radical for the way that the U.S. thinks about drug use, but I think it is emblematic that when we start thinking about people we can actually make some real changes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I think there's definitely proof that alternative <clears throat> that alternative methods can work, um but I think to be able to implement something like that, we would have to start in like really small communities because we there's a lot of work to do um just in terms of rewriting the language and undoing, like, preconceived notions of that we have of drug users as being, like, uh, lazy or violent or, um, you know, not wanting to contribute to society as opposed to, you know, um, someone who, like, deserves help. On a very basic level, we do not view in America we do not view drug users as people who like are deserving of humanity or you know kindness or goodwill we definitely push them to the outskirts and a lot of times they're unable to receive the proper treatment and care and a lot of that is because there is a lack of empathy for drug users so I think that you know there there's evidence that methods like these can work I think it would take yeah, implementing them in small communities and also, like, really working to rewrite the narrative.
1: And so for my takeaway for this episode, um, I just think, I just think we have to think about the fact that, like, when you incarcerate people, you are not just incarcerating a person, you are destabilizing a community. Whether we like it or not, humans, humans need each other. We just do. And when you take a person out of the community by incarcerating them, you are tearing apart not only a family but you are tearing apart a community, right? Um, because we have such hard sentences for drug um, for drug for drug use. You are tearing apart a community for decades by the absence of that person. And that absence is going to be felt for generations as a result of not having that person in their community and it will always be better to have that person in that community and have that person receiving help than it will be than it will have in taking them out and in like separating them from society firmly i do not believe that people who use drugs need to be separated from society which is what incarcerating people for drug offenses and for drug use does is we are separating them from society at large and i do not think that that is the answer to our problems as seen by the things that we've talked about in this episode um and what we see here is that the american government is attempting to curb drug use um has been attempting to curb drug use for forever we've been having this conversation for a very long time for as long as drug use has been um the numbers for drug use have been high in the U.S., right? We saw DARE, which has been proven to have absolutely no effect on stopping people from using drugs. And in some studies has just said that it actually encouraged more people to use drugs. Um, and also we see that heavily criminalizing people isn't stopping them from using drugs. And instead, it is just filling our prisons and destabilizing our communities, right? Um, and so I think what we need to understand is that the effects is that, like, these policies are grounded in racism. They just are. And as a result, something that's grounded in, like, white supremacy racism is never going to be effective. It is never going to be equitable. It is never going to do what we think it needs to do. And so I think there's some things that we need to understand about drug policy to make better drug <laughs> policy, right? Um, I think, A, we have to understand that, like, our current drug policies – are racist, and that possibly the policymakers are also racist, and that, like, our thoughts about drugs and minorities have always been tied together, and because of that tie, I think that unless we take, unless we really, like, think about why we're making certain policies and why they're so racist, I think we're never going to have adequate drug policy in the U.S. until we acknowledge that our current ones have destabilized communities and are grounded in racism and anti-blackness, um, specifically. Um, And B, we need to understand that maybe prisons for crimes aren't the best solutions. That maybe locking people away does not deter people from committing crimes. And that, like, maybe especially crimes that are related to drugs, especially when they are related to just having drugs, and that someone who just has drugs isn't necessarily a isn't necessarily committing an offense that is worthy of prison and i think we need to consider the fact that the way that like our want to separate these people isn't great either um and see we need to treat addiction like a mental health issue people do drugs because of many 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 reasons and some of those are for recreational use and I think and so and we think we need to think about why that is happening why 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 maybe we need to like create some things to where maybe that doesn't happen if that's like the goal that we want to have I think we need to have like some very some very clear agendas and goals for the way we want Americans to use drugs and how we want to curb drug use in the US. And I don't think we have those goals. I think our goals were people do drugs, we're going to lock them away. And I think that that has never worked, and it's not working currently, and that obviously needs to change. But for people who are, like, going through stuff, as I think a lot of drug users are, we need to start treating them like people. We need to start handling their mental health issues. We need to start tackling poverty. We need to start tackling the racism they, they may be experiencing. We need to start tackling, like, the fact that life is so egregiously awful to experience that these people are just looking for something to get away and that they are forming an addiction as a result of that and putting people in prison is not never has and is not going to solve that issue addiction and drug use in the US at least is a mental health issue and we need to have a better mental health infrastructure to solve that issue Um, because We need relief, (laughs) and I think these are people who need relief, and they are seeking it in any way possible, and criminalizing them for it and blaming them for it isn't helping. I think we need to have, frankly, more compassionate policies around drugs, and I think until we do that, we are just going to see our prison population grow, we are still going to see communities being destabilized, and we are never going to see an end to um at the end of people who have addictions or the end of like drug abuse or overdose abu- or and overdoses in the u.s if we do not think about people when we are making our drug policies
0: yeah zan i mean i think you're totally right my takeaways are yeah i don't know it's like what i was saying before i think we have to like increase empathy Across the board. Uh, But also take a step back and recognize how, you know, the effects of bad policy. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's bad policy that was written to disenfranchise black and brown communities. And like the effects of that are still remaining. And so to undo that, one, we'd have to be, you know, there has to be consensus that like the policy is bad. And effects of it are still like you know ever present and then two we'd have to recognize like that we could use the profits from recreational drug sales to fund a lot of these alternative um you know community drug use centers and i think that is um something that requires more research but not something that should be counted out
1: and that's a wrap for this week's episode Yasmin Where Can Our Listeners Find
0: You? I'm at Yasmin underscore SA on Instagram, San Where Can Our Listeners Find You?
1: I am at it's Alexandria Dorsey on Twitter and Instagram. As always, please follow us at Black Girl Tea Party on Instagram and search Black Girl Tea Party on Facebook and at Black Girl Tea Time on Twitter to stay up to date with episodes and updates from us.
0: Also, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to our show.
1: You can also send us an email at blackgirlteaparty at gmail.com. Send us questions, ask for advice, tell them what you love the show, read <laughs> to us. If you're from another country that has, um, you know, better drug policies than the U.S., please tell us about them. Um, we would love to hear from you. Um, and as always, dear friends, firstly, I'm gonna change my, my outro and say, go forth into this life with, like, as much love and optimism as you you possibly can. I think we are all deeply in need of that right now. But as always, remember to love often and with all your heart.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Our sources are listed in the caption. Please love each other and yourselves, and we'll see you next week.